You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Sydney. I am Vinolia. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolution Exchange Australia. Um, my guests for today are Kale Miller, who is the founder at uh, Prometheus AI, Mark Beckenrick, who is the head of analytics at VAMP, um, John Shen, who is the head of solutions engineering at Atura, as well as Andrew Wilson, who is the CEO at um, Advent Atom. And today we will be discussing how to build teams to build AI. Um, before we delve deep into our topic for di- for today, um, I just ask you guys to briefly introduce yourselves. Um, Andy, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So, g'day, listeners. So, get ready to dive d- deep in the world of AI and building their teams. So, as you know, my name's Andy Wilson. Um, before you start wondering, I'm just another bloke with an opinion and a microphone. Let's dive a bit into my background. So I'm currently at the helm of Advan Adam as its founding CEO, and I've been dipping my toes into everything from um, raising money through angel investments to electrifying um, protected vehicles to um, a- um, developing AI systems for combat vehicles and so forth. So a bit about my background. So I started off as a police officer in my early years and an infantry rifleman in reserves. Still currently doing that for 13 years. And then I broke into um, data and intelligence and then um, went into hardcore data science in my career. So with a bit about Advent Atom, so we're a small Aboriginal-owned technology company with a team of about 8 to 10 um, with um, people ranging from 57 um, with 40 years experience in the data science industry um, to um, young and upcoming people about uh, three years into the game. So there's a bit of an introduction about myself. Um, yeah, I'm a bit of an eccentric character. I'm interested in multiple to- topics. So I do have in-depth knowledge and also a jack of all trades in some areas. So, yeah. Amazing. You, Thank guys. you for that, um, Andy. Um, John, do you want to go next? Thanks, Vinolia. Great to be here. So hi everyone, my name is John Shen, and as mentioned, I'm the Head of Solutions Engineering at Arturo. So for those of you that haven't heard of Arturo, we are a property intelligence company. And what that means is we consolidate and analyze visual data to provide clarity around property characteristics and peril possibilities. Ultimately, we help insurers make faster and more accurate decisions across the policy lifecycle. A little bit about me, through my career and also in my current role, I've embedded data science models to solve problems across the financial services value chain. And that's included initiatives in pricing, customer personalization, claims operations, and intelligent process automation. Great. Thank you for that, um, John. Um, Mark, do you want to go next? Thanks, Tanelia. Yep. I'm Mark Brackenrig. I'm the head of data and analytics at VAMP. Um, so a bit about VAMP. We are a social media Um, influencer marketing startup. Uh, So what we do is effectively connect social media influencers with brands running social media campaigns 
at scale. So we allow end-to-end marketing solutions for uh, the social media in, uh, marketing industry. A bit about me. So we uh, at VAMP, we develop um, computer vision uh, systems for our, our influencer marketing team. So what we do is we allow um, in-depth knowledge around the types of content that creators post as well as dabbling into the research end and looking at generative AI um, in order to assist uh, in the content creation process. Uh, my background is uh, in statistics uh, and I have a background in um, consulting primarily in the financial services space before I jumped into took jumped on the deep end and joined uh, a influencer marketing startup. Amazing. Thank you for that, uh, Mark. Kale, do you want to close the introductions? Sure. Thanks, Manolia. So, yes, hello. Kale Miller. I am the founder of Prometheus AI. So the kind of tagline we use is we do the zero to one of effective data teams. So what that kind of means is stuff like you have a team that's a bit dysfunctional. We help kind of make it functional and build all that process and build a kind of technology stack that helps them be more useful. Other than that, we do things such as seeding new teams. So we'll kind of partner with different kind of recruiters and things like that and go, how do we build your team? What's the right composition? What's the kind of right ways to get started on your data journey? And then pure just prototyping, proof of concepts of going, I've got this grand idea. I think it's possible. We'll kind of seed that and go, it's totally possible. We recommend you go to the next stage. So that's a bit about Prometheus AI. Me, my background is as a physicist. So there's a couple of mathematicians uh, here today. So I'll be in fierce contest to prove that my science beats mathematics and we love experiments. Uh, but yeah, background is as a consult consultant as well. So I've been doing my own kind of firm for the last maybe three, four years. So background as a consultant kind of jumped ship and went, I could totally do this on my own. So I've been loving it ever since. Thank you. Um, now that we have, you know, established a bit of context into each of you guys, um, we're going to move on to um, the topic in focus and you've all brought forward your your statements or your your questions on um, how to build teams to build AI. And as usual, what I'll do is, you know, work um, my way around the room and then we can um, discuss those in detail. So let's start with your question or your statement, Kale. And um, you want to talk about optimal team composition. Do you want to give us a bit of, um, you know, insight as to what your thought process was behind that? Yeah. So maybe I'll expand upon the question because it's a bit abstract and yeah. I was aware when I pitched the question, I went, that's kind of summarized very succinctly in a typical kind of technical person's perspective. So optimal team composition is the question around how do you actually build a team? Like, do you want to earn more on the side of technical talent, less technical talent, Big teams, small teams, what kind of skills, things like that. So that's really the question is going, how should you design a team? What is the most effective kind of configuration? So I don't know if there's any way we could start, Vinolia. Uh, do you recommend we start somewhere? Yeah. Um, maybe, Andy, you want to give us, you know, a bit of, you know, your thoughts with what, um, you know, Kale is trying to address? Yeah. So uh, just my understanding with team composition, um, you got to balance um, innovation um, from, say, younger generation to with a bit of wisdom of um, experience. Hey. The problem is if you get the mix wrong, you 
take too much risk um, in the sort of space that um, you've avoid you burn a lot of cash. Um, but at the same time, if you have too many experienced people on the team, you, you have sort of a jaded approach on innovation and a lot of thoughts of, oh, this is impossible, this can't be done, which does really um, restrict your ability to get a product to market um, and you'll be behind the competition. So, so Andy, yeah, just, what, yeah. out of curiosity, what kind of distribution do you aim for do you go like 50 50 do you go 50 old 50 new or are you going should be primarily people that have been in the industry for 20 years or you know i want grads with six months of experience and one person to wrangle the caps kind of thing yeah i would say go 70 30 80 20 rule so um you want a lot of younger people with some um much more experienced people in in the game because young people they're a bit fearless so they they don't know the the word no, um, mm. and they will just give it a hard crack. Now, where the experience comes in is um, how to scale those innovations so um, and how to be resourceful um, and quickly finding out um, the sort of um, pitfalls of raising a, a company from scratch, per se. So especially in the data science space, there's a lot of ways you can burn resources very quickly and, and inefficiently. Mm. What's, okay. What's the composition maybe... Oh, sorry. I was gonna. I don't mean to commandeer things. I was going to say, what's the composition maybe, John, like in your team? Do you, do you aim for older people or what's your system? I think we're all aligned in saying that it's important to have diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of a whole range of things just so that we don't get blindsided and end up, uh, you know, delving into certain rabbit holes and not recognizing that there are many potential paths we can tackle, many potential solutions we could be exploring. I guess I was curious actually to tease out some of that, that uh, the 80-20 the idea that Andrew has posed. And I'm just curious to understand, for example, if you do end up with say 80% new grads that have limited technical knowledge, then on the flip side, how do you then make sure you can actually build the technical solution that works, right? How do you then get far yeah. enough up that you know, value chain? And otherwise, you know, I think yeah, it's, so it's, it's, what's the right balance? It's, it's a good, there's an old saying, um, having too many chiefs and not enough Indians. So um, it's pretty classic, classic saying. So what you need to have is wisdom and that provides some supervisory approach and advice. Um, they can skill you um, up in the more technical aspect. But now, um, a lot of knowledge is accessible. Um, with ChatGPT, for example, um, you can pretty much get a world's load of advice from one prompt. So um, that sort of de-risks it quite a lot for the new young grads because they can bring up a wealth of knowledge based on, you know, the access of the internet at the fingertips, which is um, um, in just one one form rather than another. So um, wisdom does play importance, but uh, with the new technological advances, they'll be able to find the answers quicker. And that's what we found. Um, they're finding answers quicker than the older guys um, in terms of what can and can be done because there's certain corners of the internet that we not be aware of and things like ChatGPT can bring it to the forefront and that's where you find um, 
we can start working on certain systems and applying different approaches. Yeah, but would that be from like a a, a research perspective? Because obviously the younger generation yes. would be able to access the information quicker because they are, you know, like quick on the technology and they've they've got this technology, you know, in in front of them. Whereas the older guys or you know the more experienced people would have the experience, like hands-on experience, but in in terms of you know the latest technology they will they'll be like a little behind with that is that what you mean yeah i do see your point so nothing replaced first-hand experience um but saying that what i've experienced in the last 18 months is and saying that my the older team are very important and they bring a lot of um, wisdom but a lot of the ip breakthroughs have come from the younger generation so they've just joined so they've been only in the company three years and they've already started IP generating. So that's a massive difference. Usually it's the older guys that have experience that know what doesn't work, but it's sort of put it on its head. And saying that, um, that's been guided by the seniors saying uh, certain approaches are redundant um, and we need to go. So for example, um, you wouldn't use transfer learning or convolutional neural networks to do our hand gesture recognition um, because it requires a, a lot of data. I'm trying not to swear here, but um, to be able to get it to learn or you have too many edge cases. So now we're using LSTM and we've developed our own model um, to be able to recognize hand gestures because um, in you're probably thinking why I'm talking about hand gestures. So just shortly, um, we have military vehicles, the UGVs in service. Um, currently, the only way you communicate it is through remote control through an Android. And the way you need to communicate to them if your device breaks down, you've got pretty much no other way. And um, there's no tow truck on the battlefield. So you've got to be able to communicate it to some somehow. And that's um, through non-verbal means. So, um, yeah, deploying that stuff into the defense space, people don't have 10 years to train. They have 20 days to get it in the field. So that's um, where the IP breakthrough is important. But that I just went on a bit of a tangent there, so I'll hand over. So. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Mark? <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle and talk about domain knowledge because that was something that was very stark between my... Um, my previous background in, in financial services moving into influencer marketing where we really saw a, a divergence between um, more experienced staff and younger staff having quite detailed domain knowledge and that mm -hmm. domain knowledge does really impact uh, their ability to develop um, new systems and new ideas you know we have presentations internally from oh, this is outside of my team but from you know people uh, much younger staff members who are who are giving us insights on our industry with a lot of people who've worked in the industry since it began and there's these young young kids coming through less than a year of experience going here's how the world works and we're sitting there with our jaws on the floor going oh my god what's going on so i think you need to get your balance right between your coaches and your workers being you know um you know, coaches don't necessarily need to know everything either, and they don't necessarily need to um, say, no, this doesn't work, or yes, this is going to work. But they just need to steer and, and make sure that, you know, someone's not going in the wrong direction and going down a path that's not going to work. 
just making sure that they they know where the bounds are um and i think that's really the important thing as well because then you have to consider things like well what about career growth if you're too top heavy then career growth becomes really hard and mm-hmm. same likewise if you're too bottom heavy then you're going to have limited numbers of progression for all your stuff so there's all of these different things that you've got to sort of play up with you know how many senior people do you need and also you know coming from a small team um do you need senior people to complement certain skills or could you take on more junior people because you have a seniority in those areas there's a lot of different things and i think it really depends on the the industry you're in and the team you're in to really determine what that perfect composition looks like yeah it's it's interesting i take a very um i take a similar stance oh sorry take a very similar stance with like seniority i think it's more important that you've got some you have a fair few senior people with good domain knowledge more so than many juniors an army of juniors you know, are going to go off in all these different tangents and they're going to go, I've tried this new tech stack and I'm trying this new kind of design pattern. You're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, there's this really simple answer that someone has solved 10 years ago. Like, why are we reinventing the wheel here? So I'm much closer aligned with you, Mark. It's completely right that we shouldn't see the coaches as having all the answers because the reality is that no one can know everything. It's just impossible. Exactly. And so it's much more important to have people that can work through logical thinking from first principles or to be able to take in new information Mm. and say what are the right questions to ask what are the right things to work through what are the right challenges what are the key considerations and then help to divulge that way of thinking to the broader team because the reality is again the world is changing so quickly around us we can't be on top of everything but at least if the world is changing then we can try and respond to it in an appropriate fashion yeah i i I do agree and um some of those aspects. Um, so one of my co-founders, Rob O'Donnell, he's a 22 years career army officer, um, capability manager in many aspects, artillery. So been on deployments. So that really guides us in how to get a product into the defense market. So um, that domain knowledge as well as mine as well um, has really shaped um, a product market fit. And it means that we get the the customers answering us on the first cold call, willing to set up a meeting. Um, you don't get that if you don't have a good product market fit, fit and you have a try and collapse your, um, your project, saying if it's stupid or not. So um, I do agree with that, but I, I really believe, and the investors are pretty much on the same path, um, so, sort of thought process. A lot of the innovations um, come from the bottom up, and you see that with Tesla with their massive... Um, employment of younger in, younger interns and intern engineering stuff because that's where a lot of the breakthroughs come through. So, mm-hmm. I think going back to a point of John's around, like um, the oh, it's got it's come and gone out of my brain. But the answer was to do with I was thinking polymaths that you want this diversity of thought. You want these people that come up with these really novel kind of solutions, and that's they're the people you want to hire for. It's finding someone that goes. They may not have oh, lost the train of thought, but they may not have these like decades and decades of experience in your domain, but they've got this transferable skill set that's very unique and very interesting. So I know that I always look for people that come outside of computer science degrees when I look for staff. They go, computer science kind of background is great, but I find it's very black and white in its thought process. So I often err on the side of great thinkers. You know, I love lawyers. I love marketers. I love 
you know, chemists, physicists, biologists, people that are a bit more used to the gray of stuff. I think it's really interesting. Recruiters. It's yeah, a great point because often <laughs> yeah, for us coming from technical fields, <laughs> you know, we say we go through a maths degree or a physics degree or a science degree where all the marking is completely black and white. Did you get the answer right in this question? Yes, tick, fantastic. Mm, mm. But that's not how it works in real life. There's so much gray area. You've got to be willing to take a punt sometimes and realize it didn't work out. It's completely mm. wrong. But we've learned something quickly and we can now pivot quickly to find the next you know, appropriate tack to try. And so a lot of our education is, you know, perhaps rightly or wrongly has trained us up in a certain way. We need to almost unlearn that to break into the innovation space and try new things. I think one of the major pitfalls with, particularly with junior staff members that do come from um, STEM degrees is really that black and white thinking. So sometimes mm. optimal model is not your best performing model. And mm. there are qualitative factors that you will consider to go, well, Yes, I have a really good performing model, but actually I don't want to base it off of that particular factor or that particular variable for whatever reason, you know, because it maybe introduces discrimination or maybe it introduces um, a level of um, uh, an undesirable uh, impact when we push the model into production. And it's that sort of thinking where I think you need that diversity of thought and having a, a range of views within your team to say, well, how do we actually get to optimal solution that's not just hey i had an roc of 0.97 yeah. yay definitely and i think this is actually one of my big advice is when you're starting out is hire generalists get someone that gets that end to end they'll go i you know it's all well and good to your point mark that the model's 97 percent accurate but it's going to cost us a thousand dollars a day to run like this is insane this is something that's just a bit of interesting feature for user retention so I think that's where generalists are really handy because they can just see that whole spectrum and go, this model is great, but it's completely opaque to the end user and uninterpretable. So that's a big thing I've just to go. I uh, yeah. 100% agree with you, Kyle. Um, a generalist, that's when I first started with the team. I reached out to a guy named Rob and um, on LinkedIn, just slid into his DMs and say, hey, you want to join this crazy idea? So, um, yeah, jumped on. Um, he's a generalist army officer with multiple uh, different areas of experience. And then we expanded the team from there. So I, I have a habit of convincing people to sort of work for free or um, for shares. So, um, so, yeah, it seems to work that way. So now I've got my own little cult, so to speak. Mm. When, and the thing is, you've got to call it what it is. The little startups, you've got to be like a... It's got to be like a cult personality. You've got to believe in the mission. Otherwise, you're going to flounder. So Yeah, and Rob, Rob is really great, by the way. I had a, an hour chat with him yesterday. He's very, very knowledgeable. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys want to add anything else before we jump on to our next question. Oh, I, I would say the only, th the only concluding thought that I'll probably have is just hearing all these discussions of seniority and stuff like that. I often prefer right bang smack in the middle of the kind of seniority curve is that to take the best parts of like Mark John's your well, Mark your perspective and John and Andrew your perspectives that get someone that's hungry get someone that's kind of six seven years of experience not 2030 and they're going to still have some of that youthful traits of innovation while if you've got enough of them together and there's not this seniority kind of like fight and jadedness they'll go and just work together they really gel and it becomes not 
three engineers with an output, it's three to the power, you know, it's three to the power of two kind of thing. It just exponentially grows and it becomes so much more better. Probably my last thoughts on it. Okay. Um, thank you guys for all that information. Um, now let's move on to your question, Mark. And um, your question is, how do you facilitate an organizational culture where AI can be developed? Um, do you want to give us, you know, your your thoughts on that or how you came up with that? Sure. So um, being in uh, consulting initially and then moving into an in-house role, um, where I saw the success and failure, particularly in consulting, was in the acceptance and the ability for the organization to understand how AI is developed, not from a technical perspective, but from a um, more from the business lens, and then understand the bound boundaries of what is acceptable, what does success look like. Um, and I'll start with two sort of observations before we start going around the room as the two biggest pitfalls that I see with poor organizational culture that leads to AI floundering. And the first would be um, underinvestment with high expectations. So, hey, I hired one data scientist and hey, when's the next version of ChatGPT coming along? Um, and, you know, what ends up happening is they're pressured so hard to deliver results, they end up just uh, either doing uh, 100 half things or they just focus on one thing to try and get it out. Or the other one is complete overinvestment with no direction. Um, hey, we've got 200 analysts, but we don't have a data warehouse. Um, that was a, a comment that I got while while consulting and I went jaw to the floor how did you spend that much money and get almost nowhere and I think that's where leaders in the space need to come in and, and actually have real conversations at the executive level to facilitate that culture um, so I guess my, my first sort of underlying question which I'll throw out is why do your businesses want to pursue AI in the first place you want to take that up John? I think another pain point I do want to call out before I try and tackle that one is getting distracted by a shiny new tech. Mm. I can't really, number of times I've heard people say, let's do this amazing deep learning model. Let's do this computer vision stuff, but not having an actual use case on the other end to tie mm. it to. And the reality is that sometimes you could get away with much simpler models, you know, faster mm -hmm. return on investment, faster time to market. So... Let's not get Why is that time by... series model not an LLM? Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Everything should be LLMs. <laughs> so, All aboard the hype train. GPT. Uh, so I think it's so important that we actually tie it back to what are the key use cases. And I think that has to go through that conversation. Why does the business want to pursue AI? And hopefully the answer is not because of the hype and not because they're seeing all these news articles, but recognizing there is a key customer problem. There's a key internal problem we've got to solve. And AI, machine learning, data science, maybe valid approaches to trying to tackle that problem. And so part of it is that use case determining and also thinking through where's the right part of the organization to even try this in the first place. And of course, that's going to depend if you're in a mature organization where there's lots of silos or if you're in a startup firm where everyone just does everything. But being quite clear on finding the right use case where you can actually get something to production quickly or in a pilot form of some kind quickly to try things out 
and not being stuck in a silo and finding you build a model that can't actually get anywhere because of all the red tape. Yeah, so I do have some two points to that. So a lot of data science in the sort of consulting spaces specifically is um, overextended business intelligence. So a lot of it's just, oh, we want a data analyst and then all of a sudden, you know, um, it might be just death by spreadsheet or um, building Power BI dashboards. We have no, like there's Power BI dashboards and then there's implementing, you know, prediction models, visualizations from stuff you do behind it. But um, yeah, a lot of it's just ext- overextended BI. And there's the other part where people are trying to make their next major career step. So they're trying to create a project that they can put the AI stamp on and the data science stamp on and say, ah, oh, I formed a data analytics team and we brought out this product and they used the buzzwords in their CV and that secures their job for the executive director or so forth. Yeah. So I've that's that's the, the uh, resume-driven development before. I really like that term. Exactly. <laughs> and, so, and it's not a bad approach. Like, I guess everyone does it to some degree, but we all have ambitions here. But um, that's that's the big picture. I mean, yeah, you just got to see through the the read between the lines, and that's why. Like before that, it was restructures. If you re- restructured a company just for the sake of it, or restructured or reformed, it was a big game changer for you as an ED or an executive director in your next yeah. career move. If you manage change management, do you remember change management being thrown around like the biggest yeah. buzzword in 2016, 2015? Yeah, that that's sort of the same game, but now replace that with AI, which is more fun and not destroying so many livelihoods, just making a lot of people... Um, joining up for the wrong purposes to do spreadsheets yeah that's about it i think i'll have a go mark at at answering some of your question maybe um the the big kind of heuristic i use for like why do businesses want to pursue ai is would you still pursue the problem without ai like ai is just a tool right it's just a technique to solve a problem ultimately we're all problem solvers as technical people so go if they go i want to do this crazy ai thing for the sake of it you go well if I were to put in a really simple, old-school deterministic system, would this be still suitable? Would you still want to pursue this? And I go, no, this is... I would never want to do this. The problem's un- not even valuable. You go, well, that's crazy. Why do you want to do AI then? Like, there should be there should be a reason you want to do it, and AI is just the tool for the job. Not that you want to use AI for the sake of it. Completely agree. Completely agree. And this is this is where one of, like, one of the other things I would add is, like, when... Like once you've got that piece of the puzzle in place is, you know, on the other side is AI is also fundamentally it's research. Um, mm. So are no, are no results acceptable? So like is if you go to your executive team and I know that we've got CEOs in the room uh, and go, we tried X, Y, Z, didn't work. You know, and I've had to do that in my career. I do it at VAMP all the time uh, <laughs> and go, Yep, we tried X, Y, Z. We've tried it three times. Didn't work. And, you know, there is a lot of value in that. And it's, you know, how do you, from a broader sense, communicate that to the wider business and say, we tried this and it didn't work. And there's a whole learnings and and whole heap of value behind that. Exactly. I think part of it's a trade-off, right? You know, how quickly are you getting to the learnings? And 
at a certain point in time, if you've had three, four, five, six, seven failures with no success, and it's taken you three years, then patience is going to be wearing thin, right? So mm. it's around, if you're going through that process, then how quickly can you pivot from those learnings, those, the null results to get to a meaningful result, but also recognizing, you know, where are the places of tangible value that you can actually focus your efforts to try and, you know, buy some go goodwill, so to speak. So getting some quick wins on the board so that you can potentially experiment and fail fast with some of these other ideas that may not lead to an obvious positive result in immediate short term. Mm. So having a portfolio approach is often quite helpful where you might say, all right, we're going to go with one or two safe projects so we can get some runs on the board, demonstrate value to the exec team. But then in parallel, maybe you're going to have your moonshots. These are crazy ideas. They might not work. They might not pay off, but we can quickly learn from them, pivot, adjust as needed. And if it pays up, then fantastic. You know, everyone pats themselves on the back. Everyone gets, you know, 10 times returns. I, I love that idea of a portfolio of projects. I think that's such a good way of thinking of the problem that you've got you know, your blue chips and you got your red chips. And you really hope that you bought Google, like, you know, in 2002, but you may not. But, you know, buying BHP was probably okay. You got a good enough return. So I really like that. I think my how I frame my problems is often similar to thing, what I was saying before, is can you frame the problem without AI? And that's usually sometimes enough. You go, what's the actual problem? Always try and solve it with a very naive, almost deterministic model. Because at the end of the day, that's all they want. They just want a solution. You go, all right, there's the simple solution. We're now going to make a bet. We're going to take that next three month kind of, you know, investment. We're going to just add a model where we previously had a deterministic system. Will it work? And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, you can keep repeating that process a couple of times until you go, yeah, the ROI thought there. Patience is where thin. It's over. Let's go to the next thing or we'll focus on the next problem or we'll reframe the problem. Yeah, I completely agree with Cal's point. And at the end of the day, many of these problems boil down to a few core metrics. You're trying to improve profitability. You're trying to reduce your cost base. You're trying to improve customer experience or grow your customer base. You're trying to reduce risk in some form. And AI is the tool to try and accelerate that beyond what you're already doing in a deterministic form. I think even recognizing that the deterministic model, even if they know its rules, might be good enough to solve the problem in immediate short term. It's then the question of how much uplift do you get from adding AI on top of that or adding a model on top of that? And is it worth the effort yeah. of going through that process? Okay. Um, thank you guys all for, for that. And while we're still on the um, culture train, um, John, you also had a question on culture and your question was what culture is needed to successfully take AI systems from an idea to a production grade solution. Do you want to give us a bit of a, you know, background on that? Thanks, Vinolia. So to tackle this one, I think there's two different flavors you can think about this problem. And one is touching on what are the right use cases to look at, which we've talked a little bit about previously. And also secondly, what are the right behaviors you want to see from your team and from the leaders in your teams to help you get ideas off the ground and get them through to production. So taking each of those in turn, from an AI use case perspective, the way I like to think about AI use cases and determining what are the right use cases to pursue is by applying the three lenses of innovation. And so if people haven't heard of those before, very quickly, it's desirability, feasibility, and viability of the idea. And so the idea is desirability. Is there a customer base or a group of people that want this thing you're trying to solve? Feasibility, 
is it even technically possible to do the thing you're trying to do? And then viability. So from a financial perspective, can you make this profitable in medium to long term? And if all three of those boxes are ticked, then that's probably a good starting point to consider, yes, this idea is worth exploring. And also recognizing that even if the answer is no right now, it may still be the right idea in future. It doesn't have to be no forever. Then if we think about the, the people side of things, I think it was Andy that, you know, that raised this when we talked about the very first topic. And I completely agree that you want to have both hackers in your team, people that can quickly prototype an idea, prove the concept, and determine where the value exists. So you can then get rapid feedback, you can iterate, you can discuss with stakeholders. But you also need to have people that can help you turn that idea into a production-grade solution, a bulletproof, well-architected solution. And again, of course, in short term, if you're running a pilot, you can do small things on the side. You can you can hold everything together with sticky tape. But <laughs> in medium to long term, you're going to run into all kinds of challenges trying to maintain these systems. So you've got to, at some point, make that transition and properly design the system so that you don't have to be you know, hand-holding it or looking after it and unfortunately getting those calls at 2 a.m. in the morning saying, oops, the system's down. Now none of my customers can log in. Mm. We've all probably been there. Hmm. And so well, I, I, might, I, I might jump in here. So something that we discuss at VAMP a lot is the trade-off between tech debt and tech wealth. Uh, and it's a it's a concept that we, we talk about a lot where, you know, you, your traditional software engineer comes in and they hate tech debt and they want to remove tech debt and all they care about is how do we do tech debt reduction? Whereas if you flip that and go, well, what if we're creating tech wealth? And in the sort of life cycle, you can, you can take on tech debt in order to generate tech wealth. And I think that's the trade-off that you need to have, particularly in the early, in, in the early days of ideation and, and prototyping is going, guys, we can, we can push something that's not 100% if we're comfortable with, you know, depending on the size of the organization and everything like that, if we are learning something and we're creating that tech well, and then we can, we can chew down the debt later. Um, and I think that um, uh, concept and that structure helps with uh, particularly coming at it from a traditional software engineer and helping them structure it in their minds and, and making those decisions and those trade-offs. I think to extend your point, Mark, I what I like to do is have this same idea of like tech wealth and I like to slice things up into limited liability companies. Like you'll design your systems in such a way that in theory, if you absolutely mess up your financial planning of this system and you incur too much technical debt, you can never repay it, you can ultimately discard it and start again. So you want to keep growing wealth. I totally agree with that. You just manage your risk of your system and go, can I say separate the model and how that is kind of built and managed from the infrastructure of how is it served how is it kind of like upgraded how do the developers upgrade and test their work and if you can separate all of these pieces you can actually yeah make an investment make a big bet and go i'm going to take a hundred thousand dollar tech debt investment and hopefully maybe a million dollars and if it doesn't what well, doesn't affect this other thing that i've invested a lot in already and this is where, I mean, going more into the architecture side of things, this is where microservices architectures are really useful for data science um, because it it helps horizontally scaling your teams because you can, mm -hmm. I'm not big of, of, of large teams, I like small teams. So, you know, as you grow, you can go, okay, well, now that we're, as we expand, we're going to have two teams, both, uh, you know, four or five 
data scientists and data engineers, but you guys are going to work on different things. And then, you know, you are, again, you, you're reducing your risk because everybody's working on uh, a, a small component of your microservices. Definitely. Okay, your thoughts, Andy? Hello. Oh, sorry, John. Uh, John, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, mean, I was just going to say, I, I love the idea that Kat has put forward there around breaking things up into limited liability chunks or, you know, again, similar way of phrasing it is to say, you've got a limited time period pilot. And mm. so you can actually, at the end of the pilot, you test things out and you can say, yeah, this is fantastic. Let's go ahead and convert it to something that's more robust. Or equally, you can say, it's not working out. You can just shut down the whole thing. There's mm. no nothing forcing you to keep that going ongoing if you find that it's not actually adding value. And so I think that way of managing the risk is a really great idea, a really good way to make sure that you can take these bets, but not bring the whole house down if something goes wrong. Mm. So yeah, just a quick question. Um, um, micro, did you say microservices, Kat? Uh, Mark mentioned it, but yeah, microservices. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Mark. So yeah, interesting on microservices. Have they lost a bit of popularity since, um, I think it was an Amazon that's like AWS sort of abandoned microservices in some aspects. I swear I was hearing it somewhere. And um, some microservices end up costing more in the long run. You rather just use like traditional data storage methods. It's it's interesting. Like I've he- I've heard bits of this. I think the whole issue is mischaracterizing what a microservice is. It's a terrible name. I think microservice is a terrible name. And the new kind of sexy way of framing it is that was actually a nano service. You know, everyone likes to use these sexy <laughs> But it's, I think microservices have their value because they're ultimately just a standard design pattern, service-orientated architecture. So it's yeah. totally valuable and it totally helps kind of control risk and decouple a system, which is ultimately the end goal of trying to, you know, minimize technical debt across systems and kind of help isolate that. And I think I'll, I'll add Kale's point there. Um, I think we get in the habit of of building what's sexy um, and not actually building what's required. And I have actually read an article which covered it was specifically to serverless architecture where they figured they they worked out. I forgot which company it was. I think it was Spotify or someone large. They worked out that actually having fully hosted servers was cheaper than than going mm. down the service route. Exactly. Uh, and one of the big things is serverless is supposed to be cheaper. Um, but it's because they didn't design their architecture. <laughs> you know, if you design your architecture properly, you can make more sensible decisions um, rather than just going, oh, this is the new thing and we're just going to go down this road. Um, and I, I think that's really key. And that's where you, your data leaders need to come in and say, well, actually, how are we designing our systems? You know, where's the costs? Where are our cost centers? How are we going to manage this? Um, and I think that's something that junior junior data scientists really lack is um, from a from a cost management perspective is they're not aware of hey like, I, like a, a an example here we had a, a, a junior data scientist who just left on a SageMaker instance after he was done with it for a oh. month and I was like hang on a second that's oh. costing us money <laughs> built your model you turn it off <laughs> so um, interesting point uh, sorry. Benolia, were you going to say something? No. My bad. Yeah. Um, so interesting point on, you know, microservers and all that type of services and um, traditional hosted stuff. Um, I sort of apply it to, uh, you got zero to one thinking. So 
And then you've got lean startup style methodology in the startup space. And um, they might not be applicable to a major consulting firm building a product, but the rules still generally apply. So zero to one um, is more focused on the ultimate vision, um, truly making some groundbreaking. And that doesn't apply to every product. There's a lot of crud crud apps like create, read up, delete, update, delete that don't that doesn't even apply to but then there's a lean startup which is just focus on getting a product market fit just a lean enough good enough minimum viable product but out the door but what happens is yes that technical technical debt builds up because you're just trying to build things fast and just good enough but when it comes to scaling and growth that's going to have a big cost to you in the long run so um, that's just something keep mindful of in the way we got to balance out the certain certain approaches. Um, getting market to be able to look at the scale and the potential cost um, getting uh, growing that product. Great. Do you guys have anything else to add on to to that? Guess the last thing to think about is as you're getting your products out there into even into a pilot phase. We also need to think about appropriate governance and that's things like protecting customer data, privacy, mm-hmm. making sure you're not doing anything illegal, you know, mm-hmm. and also of course, broader ethics. So interesting it's in your thoughts. It's the sexiest to... thing to bring up with your own yeah. consistency. Like <laughs> exactly. I need to spend a few weeks making sure this is all secure. They're like, what do you mean? Like it works. Yeah. You're like, ah, oh, not that simple. Like, you know, we have yeah. customer data that, you know, engineers are looking at. We should really not do that. Let's go fix that problem. I mean, you hope it's turned around a bit with all the privacy breaches, all the data breaches in the last four months. But, yes, I, mean, I think it's one of those silver linings of breaches in Australia, hey? It's that everyone now goes, hmm, maybe we should think a little bit more about this because otherwise we're the ones that are going to bear that risk. Probably the one thing I'd add to the topic of ethics and privacy is that it, it can't be an afterthought. It has to be thought about at every stage of development. Um, yeah. You can't, because what often happens is you build something and it's like, oh, you know, is this, you know, oh, maybe we should think about discrimination or maybe we should think about, you know, mm-hmm. is, there, is there a privacy flaw here? It's like, well, actually, once you've built the model, if there's inherent discrimination in that model, it's too late. You've mm-hmm. got to, you actually consider it as you're building it. Correct, definitely. I mean, upfront, yeah, asking should we really do this point. in the first place? Just because we care doesn't mean we should. So having that in the back of your mind somewhere. Amazing. Great points there, guys. Uh, now, this leads us into the final subtopic or question, and this was brought forward by yourself, Andy. And um, you want to talk about the pitfalls to avoid when recruiting people in a new venture or a startup. Do you want to give us a bit of, you know, insights on that? Yeah, so I made a lot of mistakes um, starting um, a company, but there's some good rules of thumb um, to follow. First of all is um, having a good mission. So make sure you have a strong mission statement and that could be your product vision or whatever and make sure it's enforceable. Second, make sure people are joining on what they are going to do. Like um, make sure it's clear and especially important in the defense space where we're developing with uh, developing lethal technologies. Um, 
we had instances where people were challenging their ethics. Now, a lot of things have changed since the war in Ukraine. People are like, okay, for us to not get invaded, we have to develop this technology. But having said that before, when I start, um, started the team, um, we're developing technology that could kill people. And you have to ask those questions. Are you okay with that? Because you don't want someone joining and then they have second thoughts and then have cold feet. Um, that just costs, it's an administrative burden for a small company um, or a startup for that matter or a small team. So make sure they're clear what they're joining up for. Um, the, the other third point is um, make sure you're not giving too many leadership roles out at the beginning. Um, I did the stupid thing and all my co co-founders i signed up seven company directors trying to be all you know communist in my thinking and being egalitarian and stuff like that give everyone a position make them feel important that made a lot of mistakes and uh, is essentially setting up a committee when committees are very inefficient to start with to make decisions you need a, a bit of um dictatorship in small um small companies with a divert uh, mixture of diversity of thought so um, the, the, the fourth point I wanted to make is make sure you get the right generalists on board. So start with your generalist. That's something I've done mm. right. Um, and that's a key point I think you were making, Kale. Yeah. Um, but also have your wisdom um, as a sort of more of an advisory and supervisory role. It, if they're... Especially if they're you, you want them, but if they're already jaded, it's going to cost you time and innovation. So just be considerate of that. And the the last point is recognize the um, quiet achievers in your company. So the loudest in the room doesn't necessarily mean the smartest in the room. So those people doing all the effort, they may not be the, uh, talking. You know, um, we've got people with um, autism spectrum in our team people with ADHD. We're literally a very diverse team. Um, we've got atheists, we've got Muslims, um, uh, co-founders, we're an Aboriginal owned company. So it's important that you recognize the quiet achievers because they bring out some true innovations. A lot of people just recognize the loud guys and the, um, the favorites. Definitely. That's, that's um, how to avoid some pitfalls. I think I want to carry uh, on from some of your stuff, Andy, around like generalists and things to a similar vein. Like generalists are expensive, right? They are generalists because they are good at a lot of things. So my advice typically when recruiting people is hire your top tier talent when you're starting out. You are not Google. You are not Netflix. You are not Spotify. You do not have all of these support engineers and support staff to help take a low end engineer and make them high end engineer are on the side of hiring better. They will usually have better thoughts, they'll engineer better systems, they'll make better decisions, and you can have fewer of them, and it may sometimes make the mistake of going, I want three 100K engineers, would be better off with one 250K engineer. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it is what you need to do to kind of remain efficient, I think, when you're starting out. I just had a... Um, yeah, I just had a smaller point as well. Um, in terms of... Startup companies, small ones, um, with equity, make sure you give the guys that start that are really good some decent amount of equity. That doesn't dilute your control as 
a founder, but um, I've seen some startups out there that don't even give equity, they're just ESOP. Um, so look at rever- like this is not financial advice or anything, but things like reverse vesting and other sweat equity, that's really important because they're going to be committed to the long drive because they go, well, if this works out, I could be potentially be very wealthy. And that's another thing to assess is whether you see someone as more of an entrepreneur type, especially that's important at the start, and um, or more of an employee type. And they might be more valuable and later stage of your startup. So, um, yeah, and one other thing is you not might not always have the same people in 12 months in your growth curve. So always reconsider people's roles they might change and stuff like that be flexible is um yeah okay um mark do you want to tackle that one as well yeah so i mean as a as a early you know as a small team at a startup i agree like you start with generalists you can't have Mm. you know you can't have an nlp expert that if you need to build computer, computer vision next next week or, or and then you know uh, time series models the week after you know you, you do have to have generalists um but i would also add like particularly when hiring juniors like juniors are very valuable in the sense that you can get um new ideas fresh ideas mm-hmm. you get people who really can be really enthusiastic and have a great attitude so um when i hire i have a pretty simple approach like i i hire that uh attitude first so i want someone who's got a great attitude and then i always uh manipulate my technical interview or tech test to things that they said they were good at in our first interview uh really what i want to know is not can you do everything that i want you to do i want to know did you are you telling me that if you can do something that you can do it um and i think that's where you start to to get real value because you're not going to hire somebody that can do everything you want. Like that's that's a pipe yeah. dream. But you can hire somebody who can learn how to do everything you want. And that's mm. what you want to. Exactly. I do like the shameless plug, Mark, of that you manipulate the, the test to suit them. You're the generalist that got hired first. You can manipulate the tests and give them the exact questions. Do like that. <laughs> oh, what are your thoughts, uh, John? And I agree with all the comments that have come through. I think the one thing I would add is it's we've talked a lot about technical skills, but it's so important also to consider the ability for them to communicate because, you know, one, for you to be able to communicate with them effectively and also for them to communicate effectively with the broader team. And because that's going to be one of the biggest barriers to success if they're off in the little cave off to the side. I mean, they can be very effective technically, but if they can't get the engagement of the broader team or they can't convince the business stakeholders, they can't explain to others what's going on then you know that may end up causing friction or trouble or slowing things down so of course you know there's always a balance to say how how hardcore do you go from a tech perspective but i think it's important still to keep in mind that there are these human skills that we should also value as we're hiring people bring people on because our work so abstract hey like it's sometimes you'll be working on something that's like at the end of the day out of all of these systems we make one percent better in this system which makes a million dollars so it's really important that you have the soft skills to articulate all of that so when it goes all the way up the executive chain they go i totally get what you're saying rather than going here's this technical jargon i can't you know they can't make sense of it and they go this is a waste of time why is this team even here 
Okay, I guess um, that that brings us um, to the the end of this. Um, and so this concludes our topic for today, which is how to build um, teams to build AI. And I would like to say a big thank you to all my guests for today for sharing your thoughts and insights. It's been very intriguing. Um, and once again, my guests on today's um, podcast were Kale Miller from Prometheus AI, uh, Mark Bickenrick from VAMP, um, John Shen from Atiro, as well as um, Andrew Wilson from Advent um, Atom. Um, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.